Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. With me today on the podcast is author Bob Litwin. He spent over four decades using the news story method to coach thousands of top athletes, coaches, Wall Street hedge funds, traders, and analysts to raise individual performance to extraordinary levels. He's a a world tennis champion, and he's been a number one world-ranked senior player. He has 25 U.S. national championships, and he's also an inductee into the Eastern Tennis Hall of Fame. And I know I'm missing some stuff in there, Bob, so please forgive me. But nonetheless, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you. It's always great to be on with you, Ian. Thank you. You bet. So talk to me. We were just talking right before we pushed record here about your recent run into the 70s. And I actually just made the connection here that you're actually a teammate of, of Brent Abel's, which is super interesting because just had a great conversation with him the last, uh, I don't know, about a month or two ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the time that you took off and then what it was like going back to competition heading into the 70s and what what kind of an experience has that been for you? Well, I moved to Colorado from New York in 2015 and when I got here, I never wanted to leave. So I really didn't <laughs> want to go play tournaments as much as I love competing. So basically right around when I was 66, I played one tournament one year and maybe two the next year, but I had, I used to play like five or six you know, including a couple of nationals every year for most of my senior career. So I got here and I I was like lost on the courts. I was playing here, I was playing at altitude on lightning fast hard courts after spending my whole life at sea level, mostly playing on clay courts or grass courts. Mm. And not only that, they're really no disrespect to the Uh, Intermountain Division, but there were no players of my age that really were into competing at the national level. Mm. And uh, so I was faced not only with hard courts, fast hard courts, but I was playing people that, again, were like 15, 20 years younger than me, and I was getting crushed all the time. And I needed to really re just redevelop my game and come up with a new way of playing. And it took me about a year to find a new game. So when I ended up going back out to start competing in the 70s, I had a couple of things that were going for me. One was that playing on hard courts really crushed my body for a while. Mm. So I ended up doing a tremendous amount of high discipline work in the gym, which I, I mean, I always worked in the gym, but never really with the dedication, the seriousness, and with a trainer who really, really knew his stuff. And it, it changed my body. I felt younger. I felt like 55 again, which for some of your listeners might not be a bargain. <laughs> but for me, it was like, this is cool. I feel really young. So when I went out to play, I already felt like between the break from playing and the work I had done physically on my body, I felt like my opponents, who I've been competing with for 35 years and are all you know quite good, that they were now like 15 years older than me in terms of what they were putting on their body. And I had taken a break. So I was like a kid out there, number one. Number two, my first uh, tournament back was in Houston on indoor hard courts, and that's what I had been playing on a lot. 
and it was at sea level. So the ball was coming in like it was like playing underwater. And it was just the game felt really easy as it never had before. And I ended up, the first tournament I played in the 70s uh, was the National Indoors, and I lost in the semis to Brent Abel, actually. Oh, wow. I didn't and, know that. Uh, yeah. And you know, he had, had a great year. He was number one that year. But I had a great tournament to get there after being out of competition. Hmm. And then it started to really rock for me because – the next tournament I played was the National Grass Courts, and I won that without losing a set, without being behind. Okay, that was pretty good. And then the next year started, and I ended up winning Mission Hills. I ended up winning the National Indoors. I won a couple more tournaments in there somewhere, and then closed it out with winning the National Grass again. And in that run... I mean, here I was, I'd never been undefeated for a year. And actually, I'd never been number one year-end in the country. People wonder how that could be when I was one in the world, but it's a different point system. Hmm. But here I was, like, coming into the end of the year with, like, oh, my gosh, I'm actually going to be number one in the country, which is cool. I'm not overly involved with my ranking, but it was still pretty cool. And I had not lost a set, and I had not been behind in a set for – over a year and it was just like a really crazy experience and my biggest challenge was to continue to work really really hard all the time and you know i get messages from different people i don't mean literally directly to me but like i had heard a, an interview that uh, james taylor was giving and uh, he was asked about like, hey, when you were like the best at what you did and everything, it must have been easy for you to just like sit back and rake it all in. He said, no, I'm a songwriter, I'm a musician, and I'm part of the music community. And for me to continue to do what I do, I needed to work harder than ever in my life. And it was a great message because, you know, you win a lot. You start to think maybe you can cruise. You start to believe what's said about you or written about you. And that's just a trap. Mm. That is a trap. So anyway, to continue, I ended up going to Croatia. I was playing the Senior Davis Cup team. Brent Abel was the captain of our team. And we had a great team, yet we were unseated. 19 teams, uh, 19 countries were competing. I was playing number one for the team, so every match I played was against another number one in the country player. And I had the great opportunity to have a coach on the court with me who was Brent. And to me, you know, Brent is like, he's like, a, you know, he's lunchbox, hard hat, comes out, <laughs> does the work, no, you know, mincing words and stuff. And I was a perfect um player for him to coach because awesome. I was very receptive to making changes mid-match that he would suggest. I didn't question it. I mean, I questioned it a little bit, but generally I didn't. And my experience after all these wins was that I finally had a player that I was playing in my fourth match who was beating me as I was playing the way I had played for a year and a half, which of course, I'm going to do that. It was working. But I wasn't willing to change when it wasn't working. Mm. And 
you know, Brent and I would go back and forth with it. He just said, well, you know, I think you got to go with what you've been doing. I think it'll work. And didn't work. I lost that match. And then I lost the second match to a guy from Denmark who was terrific. Got to play in this, the Goran Ivanisevic Stadium in Croatia, 6,000-seat stadium, which when you play senior tennis, you look around and there's 5,950 empty seats in the stadium. <laughs> Because it's like, you know, your spouse and your teammates are there, basically, plus a few stragglers. But in that match, I was losing badly. Uh, Brent made a suggestion that I agreed with, that I was playing too passively and just counting on running a lot of balls down and outlasting people. And he encouraged me to be aggressive. And I started serving and volleying on the red clay and coming in on ground strokes, which I don't usually do. And I went from 4-1 down to 6-4-2 love. Mm. And then I missed an easy shot. I kind of, without realizing, took my foot off the accelerator. And I was then down uh, 6. Um, I lost that set 6-3. And I was down 4-1 in the third. Managed to hit the accelerator again. Came back to... 4-3 down, and the other guy just played another couple of good games and won it. But mm. it was a fascinating experience, and Brent and I talked about it after the match and agreed that the next day I'd be playing probably the toughest player I had all week, a guy who'd won many multiple championships and uh, was a great clay, red clay court player. And we agreed that right out of the gate I was going to be aggressive, and it was really, really cool because I did it. I did the thing I didn't want to do, which is part of what I'm going to say about what it takes sometimes, that we know we need to do things sometimes because what we're doing is not working, mm. but we still don't want to do it. Sure. We still hope that the old way will work. And I had a little bit of that maybe in the first game because I wasn't really attacking after my serve, and the guy I played hit four drop shot winners off my serve. Wow. <laughs> I was like... Well, I guess I have to be coming in early in the point. It was a sign. It was a sign, and it was a blessing. And uh, and I just like from beginning to end, it was like I was like wire to wire aggressive, and even did some, you know, as you know, as a lefty, you're a lefty, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, so I'd be at serving at fifteen forty, missing a first serve, and I had to kick the serve out to the guy's forehand serve volley. Hmm. That's didn't tough. want to do it. Yeah. Didn't want to do it. And a seventy-year-old shoulder is not crazy about <laughs> kick serves, anyhow. But I did it a couple of times during the match, and it was, those were the only shaky moments as far as score went. So we ended up winning the bronze, and I, you know, appreciate so much Brent and what he did. And now I'm playing this game. I came back to Colorado. I said, "This is great. I'm so excited. Uh, this is the way I'm going to play now. I'm going to be super aggressive, and I'm just." having a ball. I just can't wait to be on the court and I'm leaving for Phoenix in a week to play the Fiesta Bowl and going to play this new game. And I feel like it's the second time in five years that I've had to relearn a game and I'm thrilled, thrilled. Love the work. Amazing. Well, I always love hearing stories. It, it doesn't matter what level, what age, what division. It's incredible hearing stories from people who are willing to kind of suspend their disbelief and try something different and make a shift, make an adjustment. 
And I'm sure over the years you've experienced many different things, you know, like that. Um, I love the topic that you suggested to me, Bob, which is how to become an improvement machine. How does, how does that tie into those improvements that you've seen over the last 12 or 18 months? Well, it's a kind of interesting thing how that phrase came about. Um, before going to Tennis Congress, where we saw each other, as we're both yeah. on the faculty there, um, I had always done, the, you know, basically the format of my talk was always about living the best stories of your life and also tennis, but it was more like life stories, uh, stories to live your best life. And my grandson, who's eight years old, had said to me, he plays hockey, and look, he's eight years old, he's not amazing, but he's like <laughs> really good. For an eight-year-old, he plays hockey. You know, he skates, he skates backwards, he shoots the puck, he gets knocked down, stands up. And he said to me, when are you going, to, when am I gonna get my gold ball? Mm. Because I have these gold balls and you know, I have one that I have out on my bookshelf, but the rest of them are in a box. And I give them to my, uh, my daughters, my wife, and now I have eight grandchildren. I hope to give one to each of them and I have a few left over to give to some important people in my life. And when Soren said to me, when do I get my gold ball? I said, hey, you don't just get a gold ball. <laughs> it's like you have to be exhibiting gold ball qualities. And he was like, oh, here we go again. And I said, no, seriously. And, and I said, come on, what's a gold ball quality? He said, I don't know. I guess trying hard. I said, okay, trying hard. But those are just words. When you're playing hockey, do you on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. jump out of bed? even though you're tired, for hockey practice? And do you pack your own bag? And do you carry your own bag? And when you get to the rink, do you lace up your own skates? And when you're doing a two-minute shift, I'm sure you're giving you know your best effort for the first 30 seconds to 45 seconds. But when you get tired, are you trying hard there? Hmm. And I said, that's a gold medal quality, that when it's tough, you're really putting in that work. So he said, okay, yeah, but when am I getting my gold ball? <laughs> I said, well, you get a few more of those qualities. But my sister got one already. Well, she's older than you and <laughs> already demonstrated. So I was thinking that for this talk, for Tennis Congress, I would do gold ball qualities. And I called a buddy of mine who I really respect, a super, super successful guy that I met who's a president of a hedge fund, very thoughtful. And I said, you know, I'm doing this talk about gold medal qualities, I'm wondering if you have some input knowing me for the number of years you do, just some thoughts, you know, before I start to like put it together myself. And he said, can I call you back in two days? I said, okay, sure. So we set up this time. I call him two days later and he says, can I have the first 15 minutes of this call with you out in, without you interrupting me? I said, sure. And he, and he had prepared a talk for me, not what I should say, but he said, if Bob Litwin is going to tell me about gold medals, here's what I want to know. I want to know what's the truth. Mm. Not a bunch of things that you might typically say, like you're persistent and you have discipline and you go to the gym and you eat well. And you. He says, all the guys you play are good are doing that stuff. I want to know what the truth is. Mm. I was like, ooh, that's interesting. All right, that's a good topic. Okay, so I'll call it what's the truth. And then he said to me, so there, there are certain things that I see in you 
that are different from other people that are high performers. And he said to me, one thing that I always say when I talk about you is that you're an improvement machine and that you really have developed an ecosystem by which you are always improving. And I'm like, really? <laughs> it's like, I didn't know that. He said, no, you do know it. I'm sure you know it. And we talked about it and realized together that this ecosystem of being in the world of constant improvement was really a system of this. Number one, I go out and do something. So that might be I play a match. After I play a match, immediately after the match, I think about it. And very quickly after I think about it, I write about it. So big, big part of the system of improvement for me is that I write about my experience. And I'm not writing, oh, I was up 4-1, and then it was 4-4, and then I won 6-4. It's not that. It's what was going on out there, what was helping me, what was hurting me, what was interfering, what was supporting me. I write about it. Then what I do is I share it. Because what I write in these journals, I send out to thousands of people that have been following my, basically, these journals that I've been writing since 1999. And by sharing it, people say to me, oh, you're so courageous and you're so transparent. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I have to share it. <laughs> I have to put it out there. And the next thing that happens is I get feedback. And... The feedback comes in the form of people writing me during a tournament. Now, it's not like a thousand people write me, but maybe after every match, I get five to 10 emails that are thoughtful. So I'm getting feedback right away, as I would say from Brent Abel after a match. After I get feedback, then I reconcile. I take a look at what I wrote, I take a look at what I need, and I reconcile that so that I can then go out and do it again, go out and do the thing again. And I do that over and over again, and I suffer and I enjoy, and I suffer and I enjoy. I suffer because I've got to change things that are not working. I enjoy it because I'm on this incredible journey that keeps getting me better. and. It's really been, for me, a really steady uphill climb from the time I was 35. I used to lose all the time. I don't know if you know this, but the first three and a half years that I played national tournaments, I didn't win a match, main draw or back draw, three and a half years. And then I started to win a couple, but it's been a steady uphill growth to where I am right now. So... Being an improvement machine is something that I encourage people to call themselves, even if they're not that. And that's where stories come in. If people feel like, oh, I'm not getting any better, that's a bad story. But if you say, I'm an improvement machine, then you start finding solutions to being an improvement machine. So that's the, where the idea of the improvement machine and the ecosystem really came to play. Love it. What what is your message, Bob, to somebody who hears that description? And just to just to recap, really quick, uh, go out and do something immediately after. Think about it, and then very quickly after that, write about it. 
and share it with those that are following you. Get feedback and then reconcile that feedback to your experience and, and decide what to pursue and how to improve. And so when people hear that list, for, for me in my coaching, uh, I, I can relate to that tremendously. And I feel like from my perspective, a lot of players that we work with are very hesitant to have, very hesitant to have the vulnerability to invite others in and share what they're experiencing. And it might even be sharing with themselves from the standpoint of uh, watching themselves play a match so that they can see the reality of their, their movements, their patterns, their targets. What is your message to, to my listeners that maybe feel like that's a little intimidating to, to document and then share uh, with other people? Well, right off the top of my head, I would say, like, if something is intimidating, it's a really good thing to do because playing tennis can be intimidating mm. point by point. And I feel like anything that you can do in order to prepare for what is going to be in front of you in the activity that you're involved with, good. So the intimidation feels like a bad thing, mm. but intimidation is also one of your teachers. So, you know, my question has to do, would come back to you, would be more like, what do you do with people that have reached a certain level and then continue to play those people that are at their level rather than pushing forward? You know, the person who wins the 3-5 league wins it every year. And I say to them, when are you going to go and like put it on the line again? <laughs> yeah. That's a tough question you know, so for a lot of people. It is a tough question. And I say, when you go out there and you push against the hard stuff, just like when you push a weight, that's what makes you stronger. I mean, and that's like universal. You know that. I know that. It's People know that, but they feel that, well, because it's hard, I don't want to do it. And Well, I only play once a week and I don't want to lose. It's like, hey, to me... One of the things that I realized in that match that I was playing uh, in Croatia, the last match, was I was more afraid to stay the same than afraid to lose. Mm. That to me, look, losing is disappointing. I'm not going to say it's not. I'm not overly focused on results. I want to win for sure. I don't want to lose. And losing is disappointing. But... I say to my clients all the time, disappointment only lasts for like a little while. It could last for an hour or a day or maybe two. But staying the same, that can last for a lifetime. And that's a tragedy. And, you know, like who's who could have been more upset than Roger Federer after not making that right shot at the finals of Wimbledon? As oh. much as he's won, he said, you know what? That one, the disappointment lasted a long time, like four days. <laughs> four days. Wow. Come on. I mean, most people would never play again totally. or something. So my message to people is staying the same is the tragedy. And losing, actually, and I think most people know this but don't necessarily want to live it, when you win, you don't really get better. You you know, gain confidence about winning, and that's good. But almost all of our improvement comes from losing. 
and then reconciling it. We, and it takes, and the pain is always something that can lead to positive change. And it's like a message that we've heard for centuries, you know, going back to the Stoics. I think it's like if people can get that story straight, like I welcome adversity. Hmm. What a great story. I welcome adversity. I run towards danger. <laughs> I mean, uh, the harder it is, the more I like it. These are like powerful, powerful messages that lead to growth and improvement. And look, you know the story. I lost my wife 10 years ago and was told I'd never play tennis competitively again because of hip surgery a second hip surgery because the first one failed. And I was like, wait a minute. This is the hardest part of my life ever. But I welcome adversity. I run towards it. And that was a strength builder for me. And who I am now is way beyond who I was before that terrible time in my life. I'm so much stronger from that. And I encourage everybody to like, uh, be willing to take the chance of improving, doing something different. Love that message, Bob. We can easily wrap the show right there. Uh, it's an incredible uh, perspective and uh, an insight. But I'd love to dig into the the reconcile part as well. Can you can you think of a time as you move through that process, that that improvement machine process? Can you think of a time where reconciling was especially difficult or painful or you just didn't, you just kind of struggled really coming to terms with the messages that, that you were receiving? Yeah. Um, and how did you get over that? Talk about it because like, no, <laughs> no, no, I do. I know it's like these memories are like, oh, I can't believe I was like that then. But um, I had, I had um, come back from these surgeries and I got back to at least temporarily number one in the country in the 60s. And I was still not playing that much. And I was about to go to Atlanta to play. It's a really tough senior tournament with the Atlanta Senior Invitational. And I was going there and most of my practice was, I had a terrible month of practice. I just, I felt like I had something had happened to me physically or to my brain or something. I was like not reading the ball. I wasn't moving to the ball. I was like guessing wrong. I was just like missing a lot of shots. Um, I couldn't get my head on straight. And I went through this period of feeling like, well, maybe I'm done. Maybe like this, this break that occurred, um, after the hip surgery and everything, even though I had been playing okay, maybe I'm really done. That's a tough and thought. It was a really tough thought. And I, I tried things like I got, uh, I put, I started playing with glasses. <laughs> I figured like, maybe it's my eyes. Maybe I had a stroke. I didn't know what was going on. It was like so bizarre. And what I need, and I called Greenwald, Jeff Greenwald, who's you know another one of our faculty members and a mental training coach, and I said, "Hey, Jeff, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, and and I feel so much pressure." And he said, "You're asking me the question, and you said you're feeling so much pressure that you don't know the answer." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Like, no. What's the answer?" 
And he said, Bob, you don't have anything to prove. Like, look at what you've done already in your career. And, you know, you have to go out and just play tennis. And you just have to be Bob. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just have to be Bob. And that was a tough reconciliation because I really, really kept feeling like I had to do things with my game, figure something out. And what, I was went there, to, uh, sorry to interrupt, but was there maybe a, a part of you that wanted something more than, than just being Bob? Well, it, that felt like the wrong answer, but it also felt like the right answer. I, hmm. I felt like there was something more practical, sure, sure, like sure. something technical or something tactical or like, should I play steadier or should I be more aggressive? But it wasn't about that. It was just about doubt. Hmm. It was doubting that I was still the player and that I remember writing in my journal leading up to it saying that I'm letting go. I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm just going to be Bob and Bob's just going to have to be good enough. Being Bob will just have to be good enough. Whatever results happen is going to come from me being myself. And I went there and I ended up making it to the finals. And it was like, I just, the pressure was gone. The pressure of me having to like continue to be the thing that was going on was that I was too locked into my past successes mm. as a way to somehow I've got to keep that going. And when I just thought, okay, I'll just be Bob. Maybe I'll win matches. Maybe I won't. And that was a very, very, very tough reconciliation. And when I think about Roger Federer, when he went to play the Australian Open two years ago after his injury, after his knee surgery, and he said, look, I'm going to go out and play and see where I'm at. And that was like the perfect way for him to come back. And then he had that great year. And his, his year started to turn south when he started to like have to deal with the fact that he had won the Australian. He had won <laughs> um, Indian Wells. He won Miami and won Wimbledon. Yeah. And it got really hard because then you start thinking, I don't know if he was thinking this, but then you start like, I got to keep this going now. Yeah. And it got tougher for him. And, you know, like none of us are free of that, I guess. I and mean, if he's not, I'm certainly not. But that was a, an interesting time for me. And now my game is always just to be Bob. Where is Bob now in his game? And that's who's showing up to play. And anytime I've tried to be better than Bob, I've been worse hmm. because if I could be better than I am, then that's who I would be. It wouldn't be that I'd be like trying to hit bigger serves than I can hit or bigger shots or, you know, steadier or whatever. I just need to be myself. And boy, what a, what a nice thing it is that I can just go out to compete in these big moments and just be myself and, be relaxed about it, which I am. What are your thoughts on finding out who we actually are? Uh, in other words, uh, I know I have a lot of listeners who have been playing tennis a long time, but their their self awareness about maybe what their strengths and weaknesses and patterns and kind of the what their yeah. game really is isn't very high. Uh, what how, how do we figure out who we truly are as as a player? Well, 
you have to be willing to take a look inside yourself. And, you know, I know that the video aspect of watching yourself play is really helpful, but so many people are uncomfortable watching themselves play. There may be another way as, in addition to that. And I feel just this is, of course, my opinion. All of what I'm saying is my opinion, <laughs> um, actually. But I am such a huge proponent of writing. Mm. You don't need to be a good writer. But when you're thinking about your game, we're, when we're thinking, we're pretty good at defending the way we are. And also, when we're thinking things, our thoughts tend to drift off into nothingness after a while. They're not, we might be thinking about our game, and then we're thinking about, I got to stop at the cleaners and pick up that coat I dropped off. We don't necessarily, when people say, oh, I'm thinking about that, I'm always like, well, what does that mean? Do you like sit down and you think for five minutes about something? Because our thoughts are very, very like random the way they move in and out. And even if we are thinking about our game, something else is going to come up and pop up sure. and we're not thinking about it. But when you write, what happens is it's no longer a thought. And when it's on paper or on your phone, excuse me, what, what you're really doing is you're creating distance from your thoughts. And your thoughts, when you look on paper, really could be like somebody else's thoughts. And that's a great thing because you're detached from them in a way that, like, if I encourage you to write about, you know, writing your book or write or the next thing that you, the next podcast you're going to do or a game match you played and you wrote it, I would be great at helping you get clarity from what you wrote. Because we're all really good at helping other people <laughs> see the truth. Yep. It's so obvious. Like, well, but you're missing a lot. Have you considered like hitting the ball into the center of the court more? Well, I know, but like, whatever. You know, it's like we have all these reasons why we do things. So when you write and then you look at what you've written, you can treat it as if it's somebody else. And you can give yourself some pretty sound advice because you see some truths. Now, when people start writing, oftentimes it's not that good what they're writing. They might write, I don't know, I went out and played and I just wasn't that into it. And, you know, the other guy was bothering me. And I'm saying like, hey, that's pretty good stuff. Well, why? Well, you just said you weren't that into it. Did you realize that? I mean, do you realize what you're saying? You weren't into it? Do you realize you were saying that the other person was bothering you? How's that story working for you? Is that a good way? Is that a formula for success when you walk on the court? <laughs> so you take a simple thing like that and you reconcile it. And you say like, hey, when I go on the court, I'm going to just make sure that I care about what I'm doing. Or I'm going to make sure that if the other guy's bothering me, that I'm going to disconnect or I'll deal with it in some way. Rather than after the match realizing like, oh my God, I didn't even realize it. So writing is huge. I work with all these hedge fund analysts and traders, and it's very similar to tennis, sports. They have to play a point. They have to put a trade on. And then as soon as the trade is over, as soon as they made the trade, whether they win or lose money, they have to put another trade on. It's like playing points. Sure. And, you know, these guys and women, I am encouraging them to write. And they, they always start writing about the same thing. They start writing about a company that they're looking at. And I'm saying, no, write about your day. Write about 
why did you trade well today? Or why did you trade badly today? And they know. As soon as they start writing, it's so clear. It's like, you know, I got really disappointed because like the first two trades I put on, I had two double faults in the first game. And it threw me off. And I got in a bad mood. And then I was leading. I was in the day, you know, by 12 o'clock, I was making some money. And then I gave it back. And I got pissed off. <laughs> so they start to write. And initially, they resist it. And so do a lot of my students who uh, play sports of different types. They don't want to do it. But just by starting to write anything, write about what you know about, write about like, hey, I took my racket out of my bag and I picked my favorite racket. Fine. Write that on day web, day one. On the next day, write about like, you know, I was a little late getting to the court today, so I didn't get to stretch. Okay, fine. Every now and then you're going to write something and some jewel is going to pop out. And you're going to go, I didn't even realize that. So I can't say enough about it. And I just did this talk about the truth. I did it twice in the last four days. <clears throat> the biggest thing that people walked away from was like, I have to start writing. So I, and look, you're writing a book. And I, I am betting that for writing the book, you are going to be a better coach than you ever were because you've been forced to clarify what you're really doing. Absolutely. You can't talk it out. You've got people reading words that are only going to see those words. You better be clear. And I'm sure you're going to really feel it so much when this book is done and out, how great your coaching is going to, it's going to go to another level. I'm guaranteeing it. Yeah. Uh, no question, Bob. I'm already feeling that having moved through a couple drafts of a couple chapters um, that process is very, very real, and I'm, I'm surprised at how much I'm enjoying it. I mean, saying it out loud, I'm, I'm not surprised, but uh, leading up to it, I wouldn't have guessed that I would have enjoyed the process so much of going back over thoughts and concepts and philosophies that I thought I already knew, and they were in there, but in having to explain them again in a different way, there's different perspective and different depth of, of understanding and different ability to communicate. So I completely agree. Right. And having our listeners today experience that same thing with their, their tennis or any other part of their life, I know is a super powerful thing. So I, I love that. I love that the first thing that came to mind for you was an alternative to video, but also another mode or method of achieving that third-party perspective, a kind of a, a more objective look at the reality of, of what's happening. Yeah. Hey, listen, I, you know, I know we're going on a long time, but I really do want to just you know, talk about this one other thing. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, and then we'll wrap up after that. Yes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So as I was trying to like find out what the truth was, of, you know, how, how did I do, personally, how did I make this growth in my game without it being necessarily, man, my shots got better, my taxis, I learned a little bit more. I hung around people like you and O'Shaughnessy and people that knew more than me and, you know, and I, I took things to do on the court. But 
the work wasn't really on the court per se, the work was in my mind. And that's what I tried to really find out, what was the work that I was really doing in my mind. And I realized that when I first started to play and lose, it was right around the time that Galway's book came out, Inner Game, Inner Game of Tennis, and that he talked about self one and self two, and that there's the person and there's the voice. And I realized way back then that I was crushing myself with negative thinking, which is very common, and it's like it wasn't that profound that I was doing that. But what was profound for me was that I was able to get rid of it. I just focused on like, all right, I'm going to get rid of being negative. I'm going to get rid of talking to myself negatively first. I'm going to get rid of having negative thoughts second. And then I'm going to be free of negative thoughts. Now, I get to this talk and I'm thinking to myself, (laughs) the real truth, here it is, the real truth of being a gold medal performer is to play free. And many people have the one example of, you know, I was returning serve, and the guy had a serve, or the woman had a serve to me that was a little bit long, and I hit this unbelievable return. Why can't I do that? Well, I don't know the answer why, why people can't do that, but the reason why they can is because in that moment they're free. Well, what are they free of? They're free of all of those things that interfere with playing free, of which I have a list. And I recognized as I was working on this talk that that's what I've been doing my whole life as a tennis player, getting rid of things that interfere Mm. more than adding things that would help. Love it. And it was like, for me, it was like a statement that I had never made before which is I think that improvement is easier and faster when we get rid of things Mm. than when we add them. It takes a lot of time to be able to hit a better shot. Sure. But it does not take a lot of time to to decide to become free of criticism, to become free of, of comparisons, to become free of self-judgment, to become free of caring about what other people think, to become free of anguish, to become free of negativity, to become free of results. We try and teach that to people. We always say, don't worry about your results. Just go out and play. And that line, when parents or coaches say to those kids, just go out and play. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding? (laughs) How can I just go out and play when I have all this stuff that I'm worried about and I'm, and I want more and I want it sooner. I want it faster. I'm not free of like this, like time frame that I, I've got to get it by the time I'm in the 16s. The coaches are start, starting to look at me. If I'm not good by the time I'm 16 and a half, I'm never going to go to the school I want. Oh. So these are all like the shadows that are on the court with us. And To me, it's the biggest truth of all, that if you can let go of these interferences, each one of them that you let go of is like an ankle weight you're getting rid of. And one day you get out there and after letting go of a lot of this stuff, maybe you can even let go of ego, which, oh my God, that would be amazing. But when you have those moments 
where you are playing free of all this stuff, you're your truest self. You're in the present because when you let go of things, it creates a vacuum. When these things are gone, what are you left with? You're left either with pretty decent thoughts or no thoughts. And when you have no thoughts, isn't that the zone? Isn't that like the moment where you're like, you're just playing free. You're like a kid again. And in my talk, I said to all these people that were there, there are a lot of different types of athletes. In Boulder, there's so many high-performance athletes. And I said, you know, everybody in this room does perfect gold medal work every single day in certain activities. Anybody know what they are? And nobody knew. And I said, how about walking? <laughs> walking. That is a tough thing. We know how tough it is because if we've ever met anybody who's had a stroke mm. and lost the ability to walk and then tries to relearn it, they never walk right again, unfortunately. And yet, maybe because the way we learned it, where we had no judge, no critic, nobody telling us what to do, maybe that's a big part of it. But walking is complicated. And we go out every day and we step over a puddle and we don't think about lifting our leg up and put, stretching it out. When we go up a hill, we don't think about firing our quad. When we're going down a hill, we don't think about bend your knees and lean back a little bit. Gold medal work every single day. And the reason we can do it is we did the reps. We did so many reps that we no longer had anything going on like, oh, I'm clumsy or... I'm walking funny, people are watching me. Never, none of that. Brushing your teeth, tying your shoelaces, closing the door when you leave the house, starting the car. These are all gold medal performances that are free. That's the most common factor. We're free of the interference. And you know what? I was talking to a skier in one of these talks, and I said, you know this, you're a good skier. I know you get out there and sometimes you're skiing and you are just like, one with the mountain and you're one with the moguls and you're just in the flow and you're in the zone and you're skiing underneath the lift line and you're just thinking, those people must think I am so good. Boom, down. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, because all of a sudden there's one of those shadows that came right in. Like, what do people think about me? Yeah. And who doesn't do that while playing tennis? So I'm very excited about this concept and it's still fresh and new for me so i'll probably have more to say about it in another six months but i love it i hope so. i'm right? i'm sure you will and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about it again uh, once once you've crystallized it a little bit further so the story is i play free that's the story to write i play free i'm an improvement machine i run towards adversity those stories if you start talking them up to yourself, you'll find ways to be an improvement machine. You'll find ways to be free. You'll let go of things. You know Andy Chernak, who won the award this year at Tennis Congress? Yeah. So he and I practice together all the time. He couldn't make it to the talk, but I sent him the video of it. And he said, you know what? I just played the best tennis of my life because I stopped doing this thing that I was trying to do and I let go of trying just for that day. He said, I said, well, you don't want to make a commitment. You can let go of trying all the time, but 
it was really interesting to hear a very good player who knows the game well and said this idea of being free just was so powerful. And, uh, and, I, and I'm not you know, saying that because I said it, but it was like I happened to trip over it. And I'm like so excited about being, being free even more and that Bob plays free. I love it. You have another book uh, in you, Bob? You think is, is that what this is going to turn into? Uh, I would say definitely not. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> well, you know, I, well, I'll tell you why. I mean, I loved writing the book. It took me five years. It, I really, I love the journey of it. I love the way it came out. But my my goal in writing the book initially was I wanted to reach more people than me just sitting in front of somebody. And I've reached a lot more people. And then I realized that if I want to reach people with, say, this message, I probably can reach a lot more people with a magazine article or something on the internet than by writing a book. Because even though my book did quite well, quite well is very few people in the world. It really is. I mean, if you are able to sell 5,000 books, that's a great number. But you can reach... I mean, if I were putting, were able to take this idea and put it on your website, it'd reach 20,000 people. So for me, writing a book now would be more like, I love the ego of having written a book and having <laughs> a bookstore. And, I mean, I love that part of it. I really do. But I think that it, the, um, the time of do the, the actual time yeah. involved in doing it, unless it's, the writing it is where I really evolve an idea, which is what happened the first time, then I think there's a really big benefit. But I think the evolution of my own ideas as an athlete and as a coach uh, come quicker, hmm. you know, maybe as I do a talk or, and then I can just bang it out and put it out in the world. So, and also like I'm, I'm trying to get really good at being lazy. I've worked really hard my whole life and I like to hang out more now. So I'm becoming a master of like <laughs> lowering ambition, but I'm still very ambitious. So, um, love it. Well, yeah. if, if you're listening, you've enjoyed this conversation. The, the first thing you should do is definitely go check out Bob's book. He's already published called live the best story of, of your life. A World Champion's Guide to Lasting Change. And then the second thing you should do, which I've already done, is send Bob an email to Litwin, that's L-I-T-W-I-N, Bob, all one word, litwinbob at gmail.com. And Bob, as he goes through his training, as he discovers new things about himself and about the improvement process and about competition, I really... I. I'm not just saying this, Bob. I, I don't do a lot of reading. I, I, I'm not a, a big reader. I know I shouldn't tell myself that story. Um, I prefer, you know, video and uh, other mediums, but I really love your, your writing style. Uh, and, it, and so I enjoy your emails tremendously. So if you send Bob an email to that address, uh, is, that, is that all they have to do? Should they say anything, Bob, or just shoot you a quick note? They can send me a note. They can even ask me a question if they want. <laughs> I'm pretty receptive. No, I just need to know their email address. There's another way to get on it, but it doesn't always work. So 
just you know to say please put me on your journal list and if I get a bunch of new people, it'll motivate me to write for this next tournament, which I was thinking, maybe awesome. I won't even write for this tournament, but it's coming up in two weeks. So, <laughs> And I've got a lot to say for myself because it's, it's my own coaching for myself too. So just to be clear, the, the people who send you an email there will receive the sharing that you do during your improvement machine process, right? You're actually sending out your thoughts and, and notes after yeah. your matches to to those people? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I highly encourage everybody listening to do that. Uh, honestly, it, it, incredibly insightful. And Bob, I've really enjoyed our conversation as always. I know my listeners are going to benefit from it tremendously. So thank you so much for your time. Um, anything else that you want people to check out or, or be aware of that we haven't talked about? Play free, welcome adversity, enjoy the journey. Um, tennis is great. And also, I guess I want to say that people love the first talk that we did. So many people oh, listen, listen to your stuff. And so many people who listen to your stuff who heard that interview have said that they thought it was one of the best interviews I'd given. Awesome. So, I, you know, thank you for that. And thanks for having me on. And, uh, Go Blue Saturday. <laughs> awesome. Love hearing that. And if you want to check out that talk, it's only on YouTube. So just go to YouTube, type in Essential Tennis Bob Litwin, and it'll be the first result there. Definitely recommend checking that that interview out as well if you enjoyed this conversation. Bob, thank you so much again. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much yeah. for sharing yourself and, and your journey with us. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon in the future. Great. Good luck with the book and happy Thanksgiving. For more free, game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.